On today's episode, we discuss the outpouring of support the West Memphis Three received from musicians and A-list stars in Hollywood. We'll take a look at the new evidence that was discovered throughout the years, possible new suspects, the push to get Jesse, Jason, and Damien a new trial, and finally, freedom. Today, we close out our series on the West Memphis Three. I'm Mike. I'm Ian. And I'm Dave. If you thought this series was only going to be four parts, stick around. Oh, relax. We're wrapping this up today and headed to Casey Anthony Town next week. This is Necronomapod. You know, I have been covering this case for, as Russ said, four years. And I've always believed that these men would eventually get out of prison, but not quite like this. Aaron, you talked about this last night at the Evening News, but let me ask you again. Why would the prosecution agree to a well, deal like this? Well, I really do see this as a face-saving move because mm-hmm. um, even the prosecuting attorney admitted yesterday these guys were eventually going to get a trial. Might have taken two years, but they were going to. And there's no evidence to tie them to it anymore. They would have been acquitted. So this way, they get their guilty pleas. Um, they look good, and these guys get out. It, it's not a perfect, as you're going to talk to Steve Braga, right, right. it's not a perfect deal. Interesting. Air Moriarty, 48 Hours Mystery. Thanks a lot. So with this episode tonight, our series on the West Memphis Three officially joins the likes of two other topics, John Benet Ramsey and Scientology, as the three four-parters we have done. That means you're an expert on all three of those topics. Naturally, among many of the other various well, subjects we've covered. Goes without saying. Yeah. Yeah. I thought it was pretty good, this series. I thought it was really entertaining. Very interesting. Obviously, I learned a lot because I didn't know jack shit coming in. You thought West Memphis was in uh, Alaska, I think, week one when you. Well, I did thought the first I initially thought media. West Memphis was in Arizona. Oh. I was just like, oh, it's, yeah. it's west of Memphis. That makes sense. <laughs> west Memphis, Arizona. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously. All those A states, man. Fuck them. Who needs them? It's complicated. Yeah. And well, and then one one fucking typo when everyone loses their shit over it. (laughs) I apologize to the people of West Memphis, Arkansas. I know this is your claim to fame. I didn't mean to give it to Alaska and, you know, trounce all over their Palin fame they have up in Alaska. That's right. All the the people on Instagram are like, "Uh, excuse me, Mike, are you aware that AK is Alaska? This place is in Arkansas. (laughs) Thanks. Sorry. I type really fast. I was really busy. I didn't proofread. That's what happened. You better get that corrected right away. Apologies to Alaska. Yeah, because that's how the people in Arkansas talk. (laughs) Although it it probably wasn't them because they couldn't read my Instagram post. (laughs) (laughs) Anyways, we went down a path I wasn't expecting. Well, yeah, it happens. So four parts. We this is um, water we don't tread out to very much. Saved for the the biggest. The best and the ones that with the most uh, nitty gritty details, I think. This one qualified for sure. I think it's only fitting that starting next week, we make Casey Anthony a five part and give her truly (laughs) the respect she deserves. Right. (laughs) Five parts. Ian takes the first two to present his case. And then Dave and I take the next three to present ours. (laughs) (laughs) Fab, 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 fab. Well, that's just part four. (laughs) Just part four. (laughs) Ian's like over my dead fucking body. <laughs> Am I doing that? I'm trying to think what could be a potential five parter in the future. Maybe JFK if we ever get around to that one. That's a big ass yeah. story. That's what I always tell people when they ask if we're going to do it. I just don't know if it's interesting enough to do five parts because you're going to be getting into some nitty gritty stuff. 
Or Bigfoot when we have Baker Mayfield on. That might be a five-parter. We'll make it a five-parter. <laughs> when we go out in the field and you go mean, Bigfoot you, hunting with Baker Mayfield. You mean a five-partier? <laughs> <laughs> that, that would be a lot of fun. Ian got a lot of uh, hate on his Metallica stance this week. People did not enjoy yeah. that. He did get... That was like the first time ever Ian was getting shit on by people. Usually it's just... Uh, Dave for your your stance on religion or me just for existing and <laughs> for the first time ever Ian got shit for his Metallica stance and all I have to say is we're doing an episode on three young men who were brutally murdered and three teenagers who were put in prison uh, unjustly and the most controversial thing said was Ian saying he doesn't like Metallica and the Beatles that's right and Nirvana god damn not many people got on him for the Nirvana thing yeah, but he did get he did get hit uh, shat on for Metallica, but then he had a few people come out and say that they agreed with him. Yeah. Well, I mean, I it, like what I like. Yeah, what are you do? well, that's everybody, yeah, yeah. you know. Taste is not debatable. I don't think people should get upset with us because of our preferences. Yeah, I mean, they're going to get us upset with us next week because of our preferences. But I mean, he kind of gave all of us the the lip on the Metallica thing. I said Metallica was good for the first three albums. It's fair. Sure. You like the first three albums, that's fine. And I like just the Metallica album, and you think that's shit. Well, it's awful, but it's well, not a valid opinion. Right? <laughs> I, I want you to listen to Sad But True right now oh. and tell me that doesn't rock your balls oh, off. Oh, God, awful. It's so good. <laughs> uh, and our friend Jared with Just Brew Coffee agrees with me, by the way. About what? That that's a fantastic album. Well, then he has lost all credibility in my book as Damn. well. Damn. <laughs> Time to pull his ads. <laughs> Sorry. No more of that. Fuck it. Pull all of them. I'll drink Folgers. Fuck it. Uh, now it's crazy talk. <laughs> Folgers. At least go Maxwell House. <laughs> all right. I, I didn't forgot. We went so sidetracked. I don't remember what we were even talking about other than Ian got shit on for Metallica. So welcome to the club, Ian. You pissed some people off. It's all right. I'm sure if I if anybody looked at my playlists or like my history on Apple Music, I'd get shit on for all, a majority of my musical stuff. So it's all good. Well, they won't be uh, laughing at you anymore when Kanye's the next president of the United States. <laughs> <laughs> That's not happening. <laughs> so, all right. Well, that was enough fun. We have uh, a lot to get to in just one part for this show. So let's dive into it. Where we left off on part three, Jesse, Miss Kelly Jr., had been sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Jason Baldwin, sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. And Damian Eccles, sentenced to death via lethal injection. During the trials, HBO was filming the first of three documentaries titled Paradise Lost, which was released in June of 1996. I've mentioned throughout this series how biased these documentaries are, and the second one being very problematic in the way that Mark Byers was depicted. But if it wasn't for these documentaries, this case would more than likely we wouldn't have gotten the attention that it has, and especially the celebrity involvement. No one would have ever heard about it. It would have been just one more one of those things. And you know, we talk about Byers in that, that second one. I'm curious, like behind the scenes, what direction. They gave that guy as far as when they were doing the movie, like when he was doing all these wacky things, I just pictured the producers off screen, like with hundred dollar bills, like, hey, hey, Mark, <laughs> if you, uh, you know, go nuts and do this, we'll give you another hundy. You it's think just, that's yeah, so like when bizarre. he's setting that fire? Yeah, right. Hey, if you go out in the woods and light all this shit on fire, we'll give you a 200 bucks. <laughs> like, man, it was nuts. Getting into some of the celebrities that 
that were a part of this. Henry Rollins of Black Flag organized benefit shows to support the West Memphis Three. And in 2002, he released an album entitled Rise Above, 24 Black Flag songs to benefit the West Memphis Three, with all the sales going to their legal funds. This album had musicians like Iggy Pop and Ice-T on it. And by 2005, he had raised $100,000 towards the legal team. Marilyn Manson was very vocal in his support of the West Memphis Three, and he auctioned off some paintings to pay for the legal fees. And I know him and um, Damien have continued to be friends Hmm. into the future. I bet the prosecutor loved that. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Marilyn Manson? Yeah. Marilyn was getting blamed for all kind of stuff back back in the day around this time. That's right, yeah. Blamed for Columbine and all kind of stuff. Poor guy was trying, was trying to be an artist. Uh, probably the most vocal supporter of the West Memphis Three was Pearl Jam frontman Eddie Vedder. He and the band Super Suckers released the single Poor Girl in 2000 on another benefit CD and Free the West Memphis Three. In July 2005, he donated signed music memorabilia to be auctioned at the West Memphis Three World Awareness Day to help pay for legal fees. I listened to that uh, Free the West Memphis 3 album today. I remember some good? of those songs. Yeah, it's really good. There's some good stuff yeah. on there. Yeah. I had never heard of Super Suckers before. Super Suckers are good. Yeah. Different. It's different music. They go into all, all kinds of stuff. And like punk and cowboy rockabilly. and I can't get into punk at all. No? No. Yeah, any they they of did it. a bunch of different styles of stuff. Rockabilly sounds all right. I can get into like that. Rockabilly, something maybe. <laughs> there's on that album. There's a a, a cop a cover of "Fucking Hostile" from Pantera, mm-hmm. done by Kelly Deal from the Breeders. It's it's pretty interesting. It was really good. So the "Free the West Memphis Three CD was a bunch of artists again, like what Henry yeah. Rollins did. It yeah. wasn't just the Super Suckers. No, it was a bunch of people. Oh, I thought it was just a Super Sucker. No, song. like gotcha. Steve Earle and like that Kelly Deal song. Bunch of stuff, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, it was good. Aside from her support and playing at benefit shows, Natalie Maines from the Dixie Chicks played a big role in raising suspicion regarding Terry Hobbs, the stepfather of Stevie Branch, which we'll get into in a bit. Johnny Depp was another huge supporter, and at a benefit for the three, he read excerpts of Damien's prison journals, and Eddie Vedder and Natalie Maines also performed at that benefit. I'm not a big Johnny Depp fan. He's okay. Just depends on the depends. movie. Yeah. yeah. Like those Pirates of the Caribbean. Those are the dumbest movies I've ever seen. They're awful. <laughs> but what's crazy to me, like, I don't, I, I don't mind them. They're okay. But like, you love Harry Potter. It's like the same kind of stuff. No. Just that fantasy really wild not. adventure movie. That's what it is. Yeah. Just, I think some Harry Potter people are not going to be thrilled with that comment. They don't have to be. But I just feel like, <laughs> I, they're just like the same type of Have you like, ever seen a Harry Potter movie? I have. That's more and it was it was good, but I think the pirates are okay too. Like I don't hate them. I, they made way too many. I think. Like how many have they made? Six or seven? No, I couldn't get through the first one. It's awful. Um, it's, I, I mean, if I was going to tell someone to watch a Johnny Depp movie, I don't think that'd be my go-to. But I don't know. I just see him as like the same kind of thing. Like have fun fantasy adventure movies. Harry Potter is highbrow entertainment, Mike. Well, I reject the <laughs> assertion. Maybe that maybe the anyways like maybe the pirates the of the Caribbean. Books. How dare you, sir? Oh, oh, man. I see him as the same. Well, I don't know if there's fans out there, like the fan base wise, like none of the people that write like Harry Potter fan fiction and stuff. <laughs> what about them? I'm just saying, like, I don't, I don't know if there's anybody <laughs> out there writing Pirates of the Caribbean fan fiction. The fan base is definitely uh, a lot more intense. Maybe one day there'll be Necronomapod fan fiction. 
someone like like a like a girl writes about like meeting Ian and they fall in love and get married. That's just her little fantasy. Sounds good. I I guarantee you that someone I think that falls into rule thirty four. I guarantee you that somewhere on the internet someone has written some fan fiction. Uh, erotica about Pirates of the Caribbean. <laughs> oh, <laughs> sure. oh, I, oh, I don't doubt that at all. <laughs> I can guarantee that. Yeah, I'm sure. I'd probably find it in about 14 seconds if we Googled it. I'm thinking about writing Ian Erotica fan fiction tomorrow morning. And <laughs> posting it, it somewhere, an- yeah. anonymously online. <laughs> Necronomapoderotica.com <laughs> I knew he'd love to be pegged from the moment I met him. <laughs> oh, damn. I went like a fall in love story. You're just going straight up dirty ass sex. <laughs> the next celebrity that I had on this list was Winona Ryder. She set up the cruel and unusual an exhibit to benefit the West Memphis three, which was it was an art exhibit. She raised twenty thousand dollars going towards legal fees. Tons of money pouring in. Winona Ryder. That's a interesting individual. I like her. Do you? Didn't Johnny Depp have the Winona Forever tattoo and he got... You know, I don't know. And then he got the N.A. blacked out later, so it just said Wino Forever. That's pretty funny. <laughs> I mean, that's cool. Yeah, that's really cool. Winona Ryder. I like Winona Ryder. I'm not a fan. Oh, yeah. I do, too. Yeah. Wasn't she the one that got caught like shoplifting from a department store? Like, There's the video of her like sticking stuff in her coat. Allegedly, Mike. I don't believe well, she was, was ever There was literally video of it. Oh, well. <laughs> Yeah, I think it was her. If I'm mistaken, then it was, it was. somebody will correct me. I'm sure. She probably did get convicted. <laughs> yeah, it probably was fucking the Hermione because fuck all them. It's Harry Potter uh, animus tonight. I don't love. <laughs> I've seen every Harry Potter movie so many times. I love them. How many did they make of those? Seven? Seven. Because there were seven books. There six books. Six books. But they made the last one a two, two part. Correct. See, I know my Harry Potter. <laughs> well, I know that much. <laughs> no, seven books, eight movies, right? Oh, you're the highbrow. Now you're uh, causing me to question. You don't have them on your bookshelf over here. I don't know. No, I never read the books. Oh, really? I thought you loved them because you liked the books. No, I like the movie. Okay. Winona Ryder is like my, uh, or is like my 80s, like late 80s, early 90s movie crush. Really? Oh, yeah. What's that? Reality Bites? Was that the movie? Like one of her first movies? That was good. I like her too. The Heathers is a good movie. Oh, yeah. That's a good one. She's in uh, Mr. Deeds, a very underrated Adam Sandler movie. Oh, yeah. No, she's in he's Stranger got, Things. He's got the fucking water fountain in his mansion of uh, fruit punch. <laughs> it's awesome. Additionally, the Lord of the Rings film series director, Peter Jackson, was a key social and economic figure in the defense investigations. Beginning in 2004, he and partner Fran Walsh helped pay out of pocket for various investigation efforts for the three's defense. Among the services he paid for were forensic analysis, expertise, and tracking down witnesses. In 2002, he produced the documentary West of Memphis, which, in my opinion, is the best one out there about this case. I never watched that one. Not that I remember, anyway. I mean, he paid, like, millions of dollars towards the defense. Mm. Like, basically, kind of like a blank check towards anything that they needed. You know what else Peter Jackson directed? The classic Meet the Feebles. Oh, yeah, that's Aren't right. Aren't we supposed to do that for a watch-along <laughs> yes. at some point? <laughs> Before he made Lord of the Rings. We talk about the that feebles. all the time. We need to just set that up and do it. <laughs> so funny. We got the big screen right here. Just get the three of us in. We can do it. Watch and talk. I say when you think about, you know, regular cases that don't have 
assets like that to track down all these different experts and stuff. You know, poor people are definitely not getting the same kind of defense in this country as rich people. You know, I think a lot of the stuff, I mean, at least from, you know, watching interviews with people is like guys like Johnny Depp um, and Henry Rollins, I know, said it too. Like they saw a lot of themselves in how Damien acted and being an outcast. Mm -hmm. Right. And I I was watching Henry Rollins and he was talking about how big of a smart ass he was towards cops and he didn't fit in at all. And he was always getting in trouble and he's like, I could have easily been that in Damien's shoes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, and I, so I think that helped a lot over the years, the West Memphis three tried to appeal or get a new trial like multiple times, at least eight from what I've read, but they were all turned down. A large part of that was due to the fact that Judge Burnett, who sentenced the three, oversaw all of these hearings. I mean, should the original trial judge get to hear all of the appeals? I, I would think not, but yeah. that's how it works. Yeah. That <laughs> doesn't seem great. I mean, by definition, to let grant an appeal is confirming that you did something wrong in the original trial. So that's unlikely to happen. Yeah, that's terrible. The judge is like, I didn't do anything wrong. Yeah. It was a perfect trial. Mm. I don't get that. And if we went through every single one of these appeals and like the full details, we'd be sitting here for like 10 parts. Um, Don't don't tease the listeners. (laughs) (laughs) I can give them blue balls now. So we're just going to hit the key details um, and evidence against potential suspects. I mean, Casey's waiting in the hallway to get in studio here. We can't have another (laughs) 10 parts or anything close to that. Speaking of blue balls. (laughs) First, let's get into Mark Byers, because many people think that it was him who committed the murders and Paradise Lost 2 points the finger directly at him. Uh, We talked about Mark's behavior in the Paradise Lost documentaries. And I mean, to say he was outspoken is an understatement. Right. The guy plays up his emotions to the camera to the point where they don't even seem real. Like you said, Dave, like it seems like an act. And aside from that, he has a really sketchy past that many people point to. So I'm just going to run through his criminal record because people point this out a lot about him. In 1973, Mark threatened his parents with a butcher knife. The police were called and he threatened to cut the throat of the officer. 1980, his ex-wife stated that Mark beat her and her children. Melissa Byers' father said Mark Byers, quote, beat Melissa up more than once. He blackened her eye. 1987, Mark was convicted to three years probation for for threatening to kill his ex-wife. 1990, he was sued for the disappearance of $65,000 in jewelry, but was not held liable. 1992, he was arrested for felony conspiracy to sell cocaine and possession of a dangerous weapon. No time served. 1992, he was investigated for the disappearance of $11,000 in gold watches. Mark confessed, but no charges were brought. Sounds right. <laughs> yeah, I, I got some comments about this after we run through his uh, <laughs> his rap sheet. 1994, West Memphis police had 13 outstanding warrants against Mark for bad checks. It was reported by KIT8 News, but no time served. K-I-A-K-A-I-T. You think that's Kate 8 News? They're trying to be fancy Did there? I s- you said, well... <laughs> You just read the letters, but it's K-A-I-T-8 news. They probably say K-8, right? Just because they're being like folksy news people. Ladies and gentlemen, breaking news on K-8 this evening. Exactly. That's what I mean. Right? Like that's Mark the- Byers has been arrested once again. <laughs> they have to say K-8, don't they? Oh, yeah, for sure. Okay. 
Fuck them. <laughs> I'm Marcus Burnett <laughs> reporting live for K8 News, West Memphis, Arkansas. <laughs> Who are they reporting to? There's no TVs. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> that's enough. In 1994, Mark and Melissa Byers were jailed for stealing $20,000 in antiques. The complainant had her motorhome burnt down, and the cause of that was undetermined. They were ordered to pay restitution and to move from the area. Also in 1994, Mark got in trouble for contributing to delinquency of a minor. Mark gave a a minor a folding knife to use as a bruising weapon, like holding it in your hand to hit harder. Mark held a 22 rifle to insist that the fight between these two boys take place. He was sentenced to one year in jail, ordered to pay half of the hospital bills, which equaled $2,000, and no time was served. Also in 1994, there was a restraining order filed by the Kingsbury family after Mark bruised their child. The Kingsbury stated that Mark and Melissa Byers had threatened them. Bullet holes appeared in their trailer. The source of the bullet hole allegations is undetermined. God damn this guy. Yeah. <laughs> He's so unlucky. Trouble follows him everywhere. <laughs> in nineteen ninety-eight, he was convicted of writing a bad check and received a one year suspended sentence. So no jail time. Nineteen ninety-nine, he sold Xanax to an undercover officer, five year prison sentence. That sentence was suspended, so no time there. With this judgment, prior probation was revoked, and he was sentenced to eight years for the prior crimes of burglary and inciting a fight. Of this, he only served 15 months. This guy committed 198 crimes and served 15 <laughs> months in jail. It must be a white guy, because there's black guys that sold uh, you know, two dime bags and are in prison for life. Yeah. Ridiculous. So here's the thing with Mark Byers, where it gets real fucking a little weird and kind of murky. At some point, he was a, a confidential infor- drug informant for the police in Arkansas. A CI, if you will. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm just going to assume for myself that conspiracy to sell cocaine and possession of a dangerous weapon and no time served is when that happened. Mm. Yeah, I'm just gonna yeah guess. that makes sense. But there's no real details on it. You know, the level of that yeah. or what all went on with him being a, an undercover <laughs> informant. I know there's some theories out there that maybe that had a role to play yeah. with the boys' murders as like a payback kind of thing in some... Well, that would be sad. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, who knows? I read that what this Mark Byers guy had blackmail pictures of Governor Clinton back then, and that's why he got out of all this. And then Clinton actually had to come out and make a statement that, you know, I did not have sex with Mark <laughs> Byers, not even a single time. His photos are... Doctored, photoshopped. Was there actual uh, <laughs> allegations of him having photos? <laughs> no. Okay. Well, thank you, Mr. President. I'm just doing Arkansas humor. Yeah. Like most of the people that listen to true crime stuff that listen to our show probably have heard of the Boys on the Track case from, I think it was 1987. It's like the late 80s and the early 90s. There was some, some real fucking weird shit happening mm. down in Arkansas with drug running and stuff. And when Bill Clinton was the governor down there, it, it seemed like he was fully aware of some of that shit based on his reaction to some of the stuff in that Boys on the Tracks case. So mm. who knows what Mark Byers was involved in yeah. exactly, but when you he was see involved those, in something. Yeah, and when you see those heavy-duty coke trafficking charges disappear, then, you know, something's going on. Like, he got away for six years. He got, like, basically six years, right? He got away with almost everything 
that n- no one would get away with. Yeah. Right. Some, some, somewhere along the lines, you would get jail time for yeah. something, some of that shit. Me and Mark, we used to tag Team Paula Jones. It was great. <laughs> Love that guy. That big fucking head. His brain tumor. <laughs> like, tag out, tap out, Mark. My turn. <laughs> so Mark was known to have drug addiction issues as well. Two days after the bodies of the three boys were discovered, a tip came into the West Memphis police hotline. It said, quote, Byers is in drug re- rehab in Memphis on methadone. Source in Memphis called him plus told him. And then an officer wrote at the bottom of this note, quote, old news. Interesting. So yeah. they all fully knew of the issues yeah. going on with Mark Byers. A couple months before Paradise Lost came out, Melissa Byers died under suspicious circumstances. Melissa also had longstanding addiction issues. Christopher Byers' biological father, Ricky Lee Murray, stated that Melissa had been a heroin addict off and on since the age of 12. Mark said that he was warned about marrying a drug addict, saying, quote, The first rehab I put her in was nine months after we were married, and I had a doctor tell me then that you all just go ahead and divorce her, he said. Heroin junkies, one out of, I don't know the statistics exactly he had, ever stay clean. He said, this is going to cause you a lot of pain and misery. Well, he was right. At the time of her death in March 1996, Melissa was 40 years old and the lotted was found in her blood. The book Devil's Knot describes the scene of her death as follows. At 9.40 p.m., a team of local and state investigators began a search of the Byers' house. While the search was being conducted, Byers stood outside the house with a woman who was identified in the state police reports as Mandy Beasley. One investigator videotaped the interior of the house, while another took still photographs. The lead investigator dictated a careful description of the single-story, wood-framed house, paying special attention to the bedroom where the ambulance workers had found Melissa. A third state police investigator prepared a diagram of the crime scene. In the bedroom, they seized as evidence three towels and a shirt, all found on the bed. Suspected marijuana and paraphernalia a couple of glasses, one of which was believed to contain peach schnapps, and seven different types of prescription medication prescribed for Melissa Byers, all of which the investigators listed. The cause of Melissa's death remains undetermined. It's worth noting that Mark Byers was claimed to be having an affair with Mandy Beasley. The Devil's Knot goes on to say, quote, Beasley told both that she had been having an affair with Byers, that Melissa had found out, and on that day she died. Melissa had told Mark she was going to divorce him. So literally more evidence that Mark killed his wife than that the three kids, you know, were the murders of the three boys. Yeah. Circumstantially and, you know, motive wise. I don't know. And that Mandy Beasley woman is dead, too. She she died. Mm. I can't remember what year, but she was in her 40s when she died. So she couldn't, you know, nobody could circle back around and talk to her about anything. Dark cloud over the sky. Yeah. I mean, they were going real hard in a documentary hinting at him being guilty of killing his wife. Yeah, and it's really unfounded, really. Yeah, there was nothing really. She was a junkie. I mean, there's nothing to suggest that he was responsible. And I mean, he's not an upstanding citizen either, but that doesn't, you know. Doesn't mean you killed someone any more than having a black t-shirt, right? I mean, they they point out that, that polygraph test that he took. He said he makes the comment that my wife was murdered. But I mean, who knows what he's talking about? Is he talking? He, is he saying that heroin murdered his wife? Sure. You know, in right. what context he's saying it? He passed that polygraph test. You know, for what it's worth. Well, and, and he was also on a fuck ton of 
antipsychotic drugs. I was just going to um, say, you know, like, where's his mental health at? Who knows what he was actually meant to say or what he drugs. was talking about? Yeah. Whatever else. He, he was, was on multiple antipsychotics, multiple antidepressants, and he had a brain tumor. Yeah. Right. And like the, that, that Paradise Lost, too, they like offhandedly list those medications like it makes him a bad person or makes him a potential violent person. It's like that's a really shitty thing to do because well, if there's one thing that Ian has taught me is that if you have mental health issues, it automatically makes you aggressive. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> that's, that's Ian has said that repeatedly. <laughs> that makes you aggressive. Polygraph tests tests are absolutely used in court, and it is okay to talk to the cops without a lawyer. Those are the three commandments of Necronomapod. Right. If it was but, opposite yeah, day. <laughs> but, I mean, technically, Mark Byers was doing the right thing by taking all his medication. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's the responsible thing right. to do. So. And if he's over medicated, yeah. then that's on the doctor, not him. You know, if he's taking them the way he should be taking them. The sole purpose of that second documentary was to to make people think that Mark Byers did it and to generate a new trial. So that's it. Why it wasn't you, a documentary. It was a hit piece on Mark Byers. Why? Do you think to, just to, to get call, a new to trial suspicion that they didn't do it and get a new trial, in my opinion. But why do you think they picked him just because he was the easiest target? Yeah. Well, they, you know, the lead off from the, the blood on the knife thing was the initial. And so from that, they just out and pointed with it. it his way. Yeah, and I think so. Yeah. When I went back and watched all three of those in a row, I found myself getting really pissed off with the second one because like you said, Dave, I'm like, this is not a documentary. I'm like they're just pointing the finger at this guy for stuff that's doesn't really make you a murderer and then it's just a bunch of like internet sleuths yeah. accusing him of shit in public like pointing the finger at him about stuff yeah it was a lot of that that group from that came from la that formed you know, the the free the west memphis three group you know sitting on court steps arguing with mark and suggesting you know that he was responsible for some of this it wasn't really grounded in reality yeah like they were questioning him about melissa byer's death and stuff yeah and, right yeah, it was a hit piece on the guy. Yeah. I'd be like, motherfucker, I don't have to answer to you for anything. Right. There is, and I know we have a large, not a, maybe not large, but we have a good amount of our audience that believes it was Mark Byers. Mm. Do you think that's just because of the documentary? Do you think it's because, I mean, he didn't do himself any favors in some of these interviews, but. I think it's just an odd guy. I don't think he had anything to do with it. No, now I, now yeah, we're I jumping to end. Geez, giving our final thoughts. <laughs> okay, well, Casey Anthony next week. We'll see you then. <laughs> So following the convictions of Jesse, Damien, and Jason, they submitted imprints of their teeth. These were compared to alleged bite marks on Stevie Branch's forehead that had not been mentioned in the original autopsy or trial, and they were found not to be matches. John Mark Byers had his teeth removed in 1997 after the first trial, but before an imprint could be made. His stated reasons for the removal are apparently contradictory. He has claimed both that the seizure medication he was taking caused periodontal disease and that he planned the removal because of other kinds of dental problems, which had troubled him for years. Oh, I think I kind of misunderstood it watching the movie. I thought every adult in Arkansas had to have their teeth removed. <laughs> I thought it was a residency requirement. I think it's just a poor hygiene requirement oh, they I got going on. I thought he just reached the age of, you know, adulthood in Arkansas. Like, all right, you got to take your teeth out. <laughs> we are not kind to Arkansas. As soon as Sarah Sanders gets elected governor in Arkansas, oh. she can issue arrest warrants for us. <laughs> Goddamn.
spear resting you guys i've kept my mouth shut about arkansas (laughs) another expert examined autopsy photos and noted what he thought might be an imprint of a belt buckle on christopher's body but we said in part one mark byers fully admitted to the police that he had spanked christopher shortly before the boys disappeared pants on he said the pants were on yeah, he said the pants were on. If there's a belt buckle mark, maybe the pants weren't really on and he was making it sound better than it was. Yeah. I don't know, but he, you know, he admitted that. Can't imagine. I've never been whipped with a belt, let alone a belt buckle. Can't feel great. Probably not. Don't beat your kid my, fo- kids, folks. <laughs> beat your meat. My grandfather your hit me. <laughs> Sorry, Ian. <laughs> Ian's trying to tell a real life story. Here we are being a bunch of jag offs. Go ahead. My grandfather smacked me with a belt once when I was little. Yeah, I've been hit I with never, a belt. I mean, that was back in the 40s, but... Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Did they make belts never, back then? I thought you guys just used, like, ties <laughs> from, like, sacks of wheat and potatoes. Sacks and of wheat. Whatever else you guys, you know, went up to the store. It was the Depression era, though. What are you going to do? Well, you know. You got to make ends meet. What did you do to your grandpa that caused him to beat you so, Ian? Don't ask <laughs> me. I don't even think we want to know. I don't remember, but... <laughs> You know, I would never do it to my kids, obviously, but uh, his, his I never grandpa- fucked around with them again. That, that's for sure. I never, I never acted up at, at their well, house again. It worked. Ian's grandpa said Burke did it, and Ian told him to get fucked. <laughs> <laughs> Burke didn't do it, and that was the end of that. Get fucked, grandpa. <laughs> let me be very. Let me make. Let me make this very clear. Whatever that speech he gave in, in John Bonet was. But yeah, back you know, he wasn't as, as much of a wordsman back then, so he just told his grandpa to get fucked because he said Burke did it. You don't play that game with Ian. And apparently you don't play that game with grandpa Ian. Oh, that's fine. Is your grandpa in so, the Necropals Facebook group like your dad is? Maybe he no, can tell the not. story on there. No, he's not. <laughs> October of 2003, Vicki Hutchinson gave an interview to the Arkansas Times saying that every word she had given to the police was a fabrication. She recanted everything, including her testimony at trial. So all the stuff about Snake and Spider and Lucifer and that whole S-bot out in the middle of a field, all that stuff was... All made up, huh? Can you go back and edit out our opening from last week then? Because I'd like to remove our nicknames (laughs) if that really didn't happen. (laughs) She further said that the police had implied that if she didn't cooperate with them, that they would take her child away. I really feel like some police should be in prison for their conduct during the course of this No, you case. could have just ended that sentence with some police should have been in prison. <laughs> Period. Period. It doesn't have to do with this case. She said that when she visited the police station, employees had photographs of Damien, Jason, and Jesse on the wall, and they were using them as dart targets. Mm. So some obvious bias going on there. In 2007, there was finally some hope with uh, DNA and new physical evidence. But before we get into all that stuff, let's take a look at Terry Hobbs. We'll be right back. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Terry and Pam Hobbs were having trouble in their marriage prior to 1993. They had separated for a time, and shortly after the murders, the Hobbs went to Pam's family home in Blytheville, Arkansas. Two weeks after the murders, Terry left Pam to stay in Hardy, Arkansas, 120 miles from West Memphis. By doing this, Terry was never brought in for questioning by the police. It's convenient. <clears throat> They're like, oh, oh, wait, wait, come back. No, uh, oh, he's too far. Yeah. Never mind. <laughs> we won't reach him now. If only we had a car to go talk to him. <laughs> <laughs> From the beginning, Pam's family accused him of the murders. According to Terry, his brother-in-law, Jackie Hicks Jr., had regularly threatened him for having killed Stevie. These accusations came to a head in November 1994 when Terry hit Pam and Pam called her family for help. Terry loaded his 357 Magnum and when Jackie Hicks Jr. Began, began fighting with Terry, Terry shot him in the stomach. He survived for 10 more years until he died from a clot released during a follow-up surgery, which the Hicks family blames Terry for his death. Yeah, I think I would too. Possibly, yeah. And I think... From what I read, this is this was a reoccurring thing that Pam had multiple brothers and her dad. There's interviews with him out there at the time. He's a really big guy. And if something happened, she would call up her, her brothers and her dad and they would, you know, come out and beat someone's ass. Right. And that's and that's what happened here was, you know, like I said, Terry hit her and it just went south real quick. So he didn't go to prison for the shooting? Self-defense? Uh, from what I understand, it was self-defense. Wow. Terry Hobbs was arrested for drug possession in 2003, and he was reported twice for sexually abusing his daughter, Amanda. Pam Hobbs took out a restraining order against him in 2005, and shortly after, they were divorced. In 2007, with financial support from celebrities, and specifically Peter Jackson, new DNA tests were done. No foreign DNA from the crime scene matched Damien, Jason, or Jesse. However, a hair found within the knot of one of the ligatures used to tie Michael Moore was consistent with hair from Terry Hobbs. Another hair found at the crime scene was consistent with a hair from David Jacoby, a friend of Terry Hobbs. Terry had spent time with David Jacoby on the day of the murder, so he could have easily picked up one of his hairs. What does consistent mean? It's not an exact match, right? Right, it's not an exact match. But how many people are consistent? Like, it just, does it mean, you know, like, uh, if they found my hair, it would exclude African-American people? Or is it a lot more specific than... It's pretty specific. I'm trying to remember it off the top of my head. It was either 2.9 okay. or 9.2% of the population in West Memphis. It narrowed it down to a couple hundred to thousand people. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. I think yours would be consistent with... Most white male, 65-year-old men in this area, right? <laughs> oh, there's age rage on that hair? <laughs> Good Lord. Well, I mean, I'm just talking science. You know, it's science. It's above my head. I don't know. You can probably tell, yeah. When it's white as hell, 
He's pretty old. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Dave does not have white this hair. He's roasting me tonight. <laughs> I know. Dave has, Dave, God I'll damn. be honest, Dave has a good, a real nice uh, look going with a, just a little bit of gray. Not You can't even call it salt and pepper yet. Mm-mm. I dig it. I do. I love the salt, uh, salt and pepper look. Oh, thanks, buddy. Yeah. I hope to have that one day, you know, in 25 years. You're really doing it for me tonight. <laughs> 25 years this fucking guy <laughs> Dan Stedham Jesse's a lawyer who stuck by him for all those years and later went on to become a judge went on record that said if it was just Terry's hair found on one of the boys it wouldn't be hard to fight back on that evidence because hairs can transfer I mean just like those red and green fibers we talked about from Damien like articles of clothing from Damien's house Jason's house like yeah. you know the Walmart transfer- clothes Right. Yeah. I mean, those could have transferred from anywhere. And I mean, it makes but, sense. I found a bunch of Mike semen in my marital bed <laughs> one time. But my wife's like, it's probably just because you guys do the podcast together all the time. So I, I get it. Stuff transfers pretty easily. <laughs> we, we know Mike is just a walking jerk off box. So, you know, it just happens. I mean, maybe she convinced me. I don't know. It made sense. Hucks Across America was born right here, folks. <laughs> <laughs> but the fact that this hair was found inside the knot makes it more credible in his opinion. It's worth noting with this hair that we don't know which of the boy's shoelaces were used to tie which boy. Like, let's say Stevie Branch's shoelaces were used to tie Michael Moore it would make sense that that hair could be from Terry Hobbs on that shoelace. They lived in the same house. Yeah, sure. The hair of David Jacoby being on a tree at the crime scene is a little harder to explain, but the Jacobys did regularly babysit Stevie and his sister Amanda, and Terry Hobbs said he was with David the night the boys went missing, so transfer is possible. It's, this isn't like a smoking gun thing. Is it that difficult and this is a real question, like to figure out what shoelaces came from what shoes or like what shoelaces they had on their shoes. That just seems odd I, that there were like all this DNA and scientific testing. Oh, but we don't know what shoelaces went to what shoes. I think they were all, th- if I remember correctly, they were all three just wearing black shoes and they all had black shoelaces. Gotcha. So it wasn't like. Right. So there's generic black shoelaces that could have been yeah, paired up with anything. Yeah. All right. Well, if it was Ian, he'd have his Air Force Ones or his Kanye Yeezy shoes, whatever. Whatever he wears Fuck over there. In my Air <laughs> Force Ones. Sorry, I didn't mean to offend you, Ian. <laughs> See, he told me to get fucked like he did his grandpa. Get fucked. Take Air Force Ones. me to. That's a great song, actually. <laughs> Underrated Nelly song. Ian's like, get fucked, Nelly. I'm Yeezy man. <laughs> I'm just saying, we'd be able to identify Ian's shoelaces, probably. They're, you know, the $15,000 shoelaces that go on those $20,000 pair of shoes. That's right. <laughs> on June 21st, 2007, Terry Hobbs was finally officially questioned by the West Memphis Police Department. Two events were undisputed on the evening of May 5th, 1993. At 5 p.m., Terry left Pam Hobbs at her place of work, Catfish Island Restaurant. And at 9 p.m., he came back to pick her up, went to a payphone to call police, and then told Pam that Stevie was missing. Catfish Island, I guarantee you it's on a river and out back. They got like Billy Bob's noodling catfish you know, in the river with their bare hands. 100%. I love catfish, though. Would you ever go noodling? Like where you just put your fist on their throat and grab them out of the... I don't think I could do that. No. 
No, I, w- I would not do that. I don't even as like, much, like I, I don't. I like fishing as much as I say I'm not an outdoorsman. I haven't been fishing in a long time since I was yeah. a little kid. But I do like fishing. I miss it. I've been meaning to try to get back into it. But, you know, I'm trying to build a worldwide podcast brand here. <laughs> don't have time. I do not think I could just stick my fucking fist in a, 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 a catfish's mouth and let it bite onto me and pull it out. Oh, that's terrifying. I will eat the shit out of some catfish. I love catfish. It's so good. But I don't think I could do that. Because they don't, they don't thing, even wear right? gloves, do they? I don't think so. No, I can't do that. That hurts, right? Yeah. Your arms are all well, bloody, right? I don't know. Are they? I don't know. I know they do it. I don't know what the end result is. Catfish have those sharp, uh, sharp whiskers. Oh, fuck you up. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, can I eat all the catfish I want for free afterwards? Absolutely. Then maybe, maybe. <laughs> okay. Now we're talking. All right, fair enough. Maybe. You know, I take that back. I do like fishing, but um, someone has to put the worm on the hook for me <laughs> and take the fish off the hook if I catch them, because I don't do that shit. Says the guy that watches every true crime murder documentary there is. He's not yeah. touching one of those worms, and no, he's not mm. touching the fish. I'll be honest, I don't like pulling the fish off the hook either. <laughs> I don't mind putting a worm on, but this is the first time in the history of the show. I'm the manliest <laughs> one here. I will do all of that. Don't worry. I will bait your hooks for you and I'll pull off the fish when you need me to. Don't worry. Like Uncle, if I have glo- Uncle Mike is here. As long as I have gloves on or something, like I just don't like touching fish barehanded. I mean, it's not taking them off. It's not the yeah. cleanliest feeling in the world, but squishy. It is. what. So, so you two definitely wouldn't be fisting a catfish. Probably not. You guys won't even touch the no, fucking worms. Probably not. I don't mind the worms. All right. Yeah. It opens me up to be for people to fuck with me and hold worms towards me and shit all the time. But. So, Ian, what do you think of? <laughs> all right, everyone, skip ahead if you don't want to hear wrestling talk, but you got about 30 seconds of wrestling talk. What do you think of Mick Foley's story about when he was a little kid and he ate the worm? Have you, you heard disgusting. that, right? Have you heard <laughs> yeah, that story? It's, disgu- it's disgusting. Yeah. <laughs> You heard this story, Dave? So when he was a little kid, Mm -hmm. this was like one of the first times he realized he was a little bit, you know, out there different. And uh, I I feel like I'm mixing up two stories. But either way, at one point, he was getting picked on by a group of kids. Like he had been pushed down or bullied or something. And he just picked up a worm and ate it in front of them. And just he's like to get a reaction, to show them Mm. I didn't give a fuck, whatever it was. That was when he was a little bit different. One of the greatest professional wrestlers of all time. Sure. And the guy speaks seven languages for the record. Very well wow. educated. He's also wrote about five or six New York Times bestselling books. He's a smart guy. Yeah. Is that that unusual? Don't kids eat worms? I don't know. I, Isn't there a I whole, never like, kids, did. Kids book about eating worms, how to eat fried worms. I don't know. Did you eat worms ever? I've never eaten a worm. I don't think so. I've never really but eaten any bugs. I would. I, in the I right setting, I never ate any weird shit when I was a kid. <laughs> this is good. I didn't <laughs> know around with that stuff. <laughs> I didn't know Ian was afraid of worms. I had like a worm phobia. We're gonna I don't like bugs at all in general. I, so, I don't like bugs either. So Ian does not like the boogeyman professional wrestler who is no, Ed. That, from, that is absolutely disgusting. <laughs> Ed from shit. Pod Van Dam. It's his favorite of all time. Does he dump worms on you? He 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 eats them like he takes a bucket of live worms eats them but then he has no front teeth so when they're in his mouth he'll stand over his opponents and he spits them through his teeth oh. onto the the opponent it's disgusting oh will you not hear the night one of those wrestling nights ian and i had where we just watched a bunch of matches i showed them a boogeyman match were you not there for I that th- i don't remember that at all they were, everyone was repulsed that's awful they were repulsed they're like this is professional wrestling at its worst yeah my, my Some would say it's him. at its. Yeah, see, of course. He's great. Boogeyman was awesome. Anyways, 
Okay, stop skipping everybody. We're done with the wrestling talk. (laughs) So in this interview, Terry said that after briefly searching his neighborhood with his daughter, Amanda, he ran into Dana Moore and followed her back to her house. There, he met up with Mark Byers in front of the Byers house before 6 p.m. The time of this meeting isn't possible. The meeting between Dana Moore, Mark Byers, and Terry Hobbs would have had to have taken place after Byers' missing person report had finished being filed, which was approximately 8.30 p.m. If we remember from back in part one, Dana Moore, according to Dana Moore and Mark Byers' accounts of that night, they didn't stand in the street and talk until like 11.30 that night. Mark Byers filed an affidavit saying that he didn't see Terry Hobbs during this time period. Terry recalled visiting Robin Hood Hills between 6 and 6.30 p.m. with his friend David Jacoby. In one interview, he described 20 to 40 people out searching on four-wheelers, motorcycles, and bicycles. In another interview, he says probably 100 people were looking before dark. The three boys were last seen at 6 p.m. and not reported missing until after 8 p.m. There was no massive turnout immediately for a search either. Furthermore, David Jacoby has stated in an affidavit that he was not in the woods with Terry Hobbs at this time and that his searching with Terry consisted of briefly driving around. These are the two, you know, these are some pretty big issues with an al- with, you know, alibi for him in those issues in the story leave Terry Hobbs with no alibi witnesses for most of the time between 5 and 9 p.m. So it's a little suspicious. It's not overwhelmingly suspicious. No, and we're talking about something that happened in 1993, and he's being questioned for the first time in 2007. Okay, I think there's some more to discuss here with this guy, but right now I'm not convinced. <laughs> That's where Dave's at on this That's one. where I'm at right now. <laughs> During a benefit in Little Rock, Natalie Maines from the Dixie Chicks brought up some of the recent findings presented by the lawyers and reasons why Terry Hobbs should be considered a suspect. Months later, on November 25, 2008, Terry Hobbs, saying he had been defamed and publicly accused of murder, filed suit against Natalie Maines. This would prove to be a big miscalculation from Terry Hobbs because this opened him up to a deposition where anything could be asked under oath. This made Terry have to answer questions from sworn statements made by friends and family members. Uh-oh. It's like them damn Dixie chicks. They can't make fun of me. I'll show them. <laughs> well thought out, Terry. Well thought out. So let's go through some of these sworn statements that he was asked or had to answer for in this deposition. Joe Lynn McGawie. Stevie's aunt stated that Terry Hobbs repeatedly sexually molested his daughter, Amanda. She stated that he used cocaine, crystal meth, and marijuana. She stated that she was at the Hobbs house on May 6, 1993 and saw, quote, Terry washed clothes, bed linens, and curtains at an odd hour. He was not just washing the dirty laundry, but he was also taking clothes out of the dresser drawers and washing those too. She stated she found Stevie's favorite pocket knife, one that he always kept with him among Terry Hobbs' belongings. Pam said she was surprised that the knife was not found on Stevie's body. JoLynn said that Terry Hobbs had told her that his experience as a butcher gave him the skill to make the cut on Christopher Byers' genitals. What? (laughs) She stated she discovered Terry had a large collection of knives. In response, Terry Hobbs admitted to the drug use, gave contradictory stories about Stevie's knife, denied washing the items on May 6th, 
denied discussing the murders with Joe Lynn and denied the molestation charges. I mean, that's a bold statement. Where was this lady coming forward to the police with this? Right. Judy Sadler, Stevie's aunt, stated Stevie told her Terry Hobbs locked Stevie in the closet and beat him. She said he forced Stevie and his sister Amanda to watch pornography and threatened to kill members of the Hicks family if Stevie told. She said Terry forced Stevie to sexually molest his sister and he made Stevie watch him masturbate. Terry Hobbs denied these accusations. Okay, now some things are stacking up. (laughs) Sheila Hicks, Stevie's aunt, stated that Terry Hobbs whipped Stevie Branch leaving welts. She stated he forced Stevie to play, quote, dead cockroach laying on his back with his arms and legs raised. And when his limbs grew tired and he tried to lower them, Terry would, quote, whoop him. She also stated that Stevie talked about fights that Terry and Pam had and Stevie saw Terry strangling Pam. Finally, she stated in 1997 that she saw Terry Hobbs simulating sex with his then nine-year-old daughter, Amanda. Terry denied all of this. Dave, would you rather play dead cockroach or buck buck? How many hands up? (laughs) Jesus Christ. (laughs) I think I'll go with dead cockroach. Yeah, I think so, too. Buck buck. (laughs) Just the name buck buck. How many hands up? What was that from again? Disgusting. That was uh, Albert Fish. Was it? It was. Yeah, he had the kids. It was one of his games where he would have the kids hit him with stuff. I remember the game. I just remember who did it. Okay, good to know. Just in case it comes up on trivia this week. Like he would hold up. He would they would have to guess how many fingers. And if they were wrong, that was how many times they had to hit him. I will remember that based on uh, you two would not play Buck Buck. How many hands up? Just as both of you would not touch a fish. Albert Fish. (laughs) <laughs> good job we'll remember not to I'll, I'll, i will not put those on my 10 questions <laughs> all right crossing that one off <laughs> pretty sure you guys hadn't even remembered buck book how many hands until i just brought it up right now no i completely forgot about that <laughs> marie hicks stevie's grandmother claimed that terry hobbs was physically and sexually abusive used drugs and was an alcoholic She said that when Amanda was young, she confided in her that Terry Hobbs stuck his finger in her, quote, booty. Terry Hobbs denied all of this. So there's four witnesses stacking up here with some pretty specific and graphic testimony. I mean, what does it take to get to get four people to lie on top of each other like that? Fifteen years later, people, what the fuck have you been doing since then? Mm. That's what kind of irritates me with this. Like if, if you if this is all true, where the fuck were you? When these kids were were yeah. murdered and, you know, for the first month, police had absolutely no leads. Mm. It, it's I don't know. I'm not saying they're lying. I'm not saying they're telling the truth. I'm just saying if they are telling the truth. Yeah. Why the fuck are you coming out now? Yeah. These are wild stories. Amanda Hobbs, Terry's daughter, gave a graphic testimony regarding her father's abuse. Terry denied the abuse and said he couldn't remember if he ever discussed this subject with her. She's also in the West of Memphis documentary. Um, yeah. She seems like a pretty traumatized uh, young mm. woman. I bet. Based, based on, on the this. fact that her brother was murdered the way he was. And then, um, you know, I can't say whether or not it's true that Terry Hobbs did that, but yeah. it would lead you to believe that potentially, you know. Sharon Nelson, Terry's girlfriend, said that Terry claimed that he found the bodies before the police, but left them there undiscovered. Terry denied this. David Jacoby, Terry's friend, said that he only searched with Terry briefly before dark. 
He also stated that when Terry came to his house, he saw the three victims in the street behind him. Terry denied ever having seen the victims that evening and described repeated trips searching with David Jacoby. Mildred French, an elderly neighbor of his during the 1980s, said that she was sexually attacked by Terry Hobbs. She also stated that he claimed to have killed her cat and charges were filed. Without actually denying the attack, Terry dismissed this as, quote, ancient history. He admitted to being sentenced to counseling at the time, but denied saying that he killed her cat. So with all these eyewitness testimonies of all this stuff, they instead went after the three kids that had heavy metal T-shirts and no evidence. Satan, Dave. Huh? Satan. Hmm. Well, I think the issue, too, with this is, you know, they had straight they had tunnel vision on Damien, specifically on Damien. And they just completely overlooked questioning anybody, you know. They never tracked down Terry Hobbs to interview him. Yeah, like if they would have went to at least one of these witnesses to discuss Terry Hobbs, they might have started unraveling all this information if they had bothered to ask any questions. Or if one of these witnesses would have spoke up, too. Well, that too. Like, hey, by the way, this guy is a piece of shit. The injuries the three boys suffered that were presented by the prosecution were also questioned when competent doctors looked at them. Of the numerous experts that gave their opinions on the injuries was one that we've talked about in the JonBenet Ramsey case, and I'm pretty sure we talked about him in OJ, and we're going to talk about him in Casey Anthony, was forensic pathologist Dr. Werner Spitz. You know who doesn't Spitz? Casey Anthony. (laughs) You know this, Dave. You know this? I've heard. Okay. I told you. (laughs) All of these experts, including Dr. Werner Spitz, came to the conclusion that the wounds on the boys that were said to have been done with Jason Baldwin's combat knife were actually post-mortem and done by animals, specifically turtles. This also included the castration of Christopher Byers. This is legitimately the biggest twist in this entire story. Oh, yeah. Like, <laughs> when I was reading this the first time, I had to reread the sentence. It's like, he just said some fucking turtles? It's wild. <laughs> Uh, Mark Byers, when contacted by Kate 8 News, had this reply. I like turtles. That's all he had to say. (laughs) (laughs) That's the weirdest clip of all time. (laughs) The area of water that the boys were found in in Robin Hood Hills had a popular nickname around West Memphis, Turtle City. There were multiple species of turtles in this water, including large snapping turtles. When turtles feed on something like a dead body, they go for the softest parts of the body first. And this is, I mean, this is the case with most animals. Turtles also use their claws to dig as they pull away when eating underwater. Mm. Christopher Byers' castration was, in the expert opinion, said to be the result of a turtle feeding on him. There were also scratch marks on his inner thighs that would be consistent with a turtle pulling away while feeding. The injuries on the boys' ears that were said to be, you know, the prosecution said were to be from Damien and Jason holding their ears during oral sex were also an expert opinion said to have been done by turtles. Another soft spot of the body that something like a turtle would go for first. The various cuts and other scratches that were said to have been done by the combat knife as a method of like torture were also consistent with turtles pulling on the bodies with their claws. There were also some wounds that the defense thought were human bite marks on the boys' bodies that were actually an expert opinion attributed to turtles. 
in the documentary west of memphis an expert turtle handler allows a snapping turtle to bite his arm and the wound very closely resembles autopsy photos from wounds on the three boys that is absolutely amazing crazy it is and i think it goes back to the competency of the me that we talked about previously yeah and you know pigs are the closest thing to human flesh right like when you're practicing to tattoo a lot of times people will tattoo on pigs and stuff so in the documentary they um you know they show like i said they show this guy get bit by the snapping turtle but then they also throw some pigs in in water with this guy throws a bunch of pigs in they have a camera under the water and they have um these other turtles that were that lived in that that water in robin hood hills they're not snapping turtles i don't know what kind of turtles they are but they're something different but they show them how they feed and they do they go up with their claws and they just like latch on they start latching onto the pig and like pulling away and they were scratching Hmm. damn they just assumed it was that combat knife they did the whole thing with diving into the lake behind their house to pull out an old knife that had been thrown a year ago right and john fogelman stood there with that grapefruit in front of the jury and started hitting it with the with the combat knife and said, yeah. look at that. It makes the same wound. Just look at it. Yeah. <laughs> right. Fucking turtles. Whiskey. Beer. Tequila. More beer. More vodka. More whiskey. And more beer. There you go. Good job on the keg fill up, Mike. <laughs> well, your pour was fantastic. I, um, the one I did You're on Mr. mine. Mr. Foam. Was, yeah, man, I got to figure this damn thing out. But you did get a new sweet uh, tap for your keg. I'm going to have to put out a picture of that. Necronomicon yeah. tap. It's pretty cool. Yeah. All right. Remind me to take a photo. We'll send that out. All podcast all the time. <laughs> <laughs> In July 2008, it was revealed that Kent Arnold, the jury foreman on the trial of Damien and Jason, had discussed the case with an attorney prior to the beginning of deliberations. Arnold was accused of advocating for the guilt of the West Memphis Three and sharing knowledge of inadmissible evidence like Jesse's confession with other jurors. At the time, legal experts agreed that this issue could result in a reversal of the convictions of Jason Baldwin and Damian Eccles. I mean, there's a whole story that goes along with this, but this foreman clearly made up his mind prior to trial and he had, you know, discussions with his own personal attorney. I forget what the exact story was, but he clearly had his mind made up, right? Yeah, and it, it sounded like he was going to make damn sure that he made everybody else's mind up, too. Yeah. So they never had a chance. In September 2008, Dan Stedham testified under oath that during the trial, Judge David Burnett made an improper communication with the jury during its deliberations. Stidham overheard Judge Burnett discuss taking a lunch break with the jury foreman and heard the foreman reply that the jury was almost finished. He testified Judge Burnett responded, quote, you'll need food for when you come back for sentencing, and that the foreman asked in return what would happen if the defendant was acquitted. Stidman said the judge closed the door without answering. Dan Stidham testified that his own failure to put this incident on the court record and his failure to meet the minimum requirements in state law to represent a defendant in a capital murder case was evidence of ineffective assistance of counsel and that Jesse's conviction should therefore be vacated. You'll need food for when you come back for sentencing. Yeah. A little presumptuous, a judge. And also, how could that, how could Dan not put that in the trial record or bring that up as an issue, you know? Yeah. I mean, talk about Dan Stidham being a good, good guy. Like he stood by Jesse this whole time. I mean, he fucked up big time with this, but then 
testified to his own failure. Yeah. No one in this case has admitted failure in yeah. anything. Yeah, very good point. I don't know the law, obviously, but I would assume that would jeopardize him being a judge because he later became a judge in life, but he testified to his own failures. Takes balls, for sure. Like my representation of this client was so inadequate, I feel that his conviction should be vacated <laughs> due, due to its inadequacy. I mean, you know. Yeah. That's crazy. With all this new evidence, a new trial was requested. But on September 10th, 2008, Judge Burnett denied the request for a retrial, citing the DNA test as inconclusive. That ruling was appealed to the Arkansas Supreme Court, which heard the arguments on the case on September 30th, 2010. Inconclusive. The same fucking judge. How many years later? 16 years later. Yeah. Unbelievable. Well, and you know, when, when they take this to the Arkansas Supreme Court, they're arguing the language of the DNA laws and like and getting a new trial. And essentially the way that it's worded is that Arkansas could never make a wrong decision. Like Arkansas, their court system, it's not possible for anything to go wrong in Arkansas. Mm-hmm. You, no one can be falsely convicted. It's like a perfect court down there. Well, we're seeing so, that on display right now. It's flawless. <laughs> yeah, I remember a documentary, the wording, the states at the, whoever was arguing, the state's attorney, it was a ridiculous argument that the defense seemed to beat back because it was crazy. On November 4th, 2010, the Arkansas Supreme Court ordered a lower judge to consider whether newly analyzed DNA evidence might exonerate the West Memphis Three. The justices also instructed the lower court to examine claims of misconduct by the jurors who sentenced Damien to death and Jesse and Jason to life in prison. In early December 2010, the case really got the break that it needed after all of these years, which was a new judge. David Burnett was elected to the Arkansas State Senate, and Judge David Laser was selected to replace him and preside in the evidentiary hearings mandated by the successful appeal. Finally, David Burnett, you did such a good job. Let's promote you. State <laughs> senator. It's just, really just failing upwards. Right. Like a, that's and, what happens. I think that's a lot of cases. Oh, that's what happens. Yep. Like, this guy sucks. Let's get him out of here. Right. Let's promote that guy. Yeah. Oh, this guy sucks. Let's promote him. <laughs> get him out of this position. You know, interesting thing about David Burnett is, you know, he would never admit fault in this. Like, he was, you know, in his mind, or at least publicly said, like, he is was the perfect judge throughout this whole thing. Mm. Um, but when he ran for re-election after all of this went down, he ran to abolish the death penalty in Arkansas. Interesting. And he and he lost, like landslide lost based on that. He ran really heavy to get rid of the death penalty. So I don't know if that means anything. Someone's yeah, feeling guilty. To, you mean when yeah. he ran for actual senator? Like United States Senator? Isn't that what we said he was going to go do? Or was yeah. it re-election of state senator? He was elected state senator. He only served like whatever, like one term. Okay. And then he ran for re-election or he went for like actual United States Senator? Re-election to the Arkansas okay. State State Senate. Got it. Yeah, he was, a Dem- he was a Democrat and he won. And then for re-election, he ran to uh, get rid of the death penalty. Got it. Was one of his big things and... Wow. He he did not win. <laughs> he like lost by a landslide. With the new evidence allowed to be seen before it judged, the state of Arkansas quickly realized that the West Memphis Three were more than likely going to get a new trial. 
And if they were found to have been falsely convicted and all this nonsense has happened throughout this story was confirmed in court, it would open up huge lawsuits. I mean, we're talking, they would be able to sue everybody, the police department, the, um, the county, the juvenile system with Jerry driver and his stupid shit, the court, like every, they would just line up lawsuits against Arkansas. Millions and millions and millions. They would bankrupt some places. So the state started negotiating an Alfred plea. This is some mental gymnastics here with an Alfred plea. An Alfred plea in United States law is a guilty plea in criminal court where a defendant in a criminal case does not admit to the criminal act and asserts innocence. In entering an Alfred plea, the defendant admits that the evidence presented by the prosecution would be likely to persuade a judge or jury to find the defendant guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. Essentially, the three would be saying, we didn't commit these murders, but the state would find us guilty again if we took a new trial. The state is then allowed to say, yeah, they were going to get a new trial, but they admitted guilt in a roundabout way, so the case is still closed. But under the rules of an Alfred plea, they're allowed to leave prison that same day. Wow. Which would be amazing, right? After all this time? When this was presented to the three, Damien and Jason accepted immediately. Like, yeah, this isn't clearing their names completely, but Damien would eventually be executed for this. And it seemed like Jesse was thinking, I've been sitting here for about 18 years. If I can get out of prison, I'm I'm leaving. Jason didn't want to go the route of an Alfred plea. He wanted their names to be completely cleared, and he was willing to spend the rest of his life in prison to get that clear name. Sometimes you got to cut your losses, man. You were never going to do that. Reading this the first time through, I was all on board with Jason. This is... This is... uh, Also, well, we'll get into it later. The state wasn't going to do the Alfred plea unless all three of them were on board with it. After weeks of negotiating between lawyers and the state, Jason decided to accept the Alfred plea based on the fact that Damien was going to eventually be executed. And that's the only way I think I side with Jason on this is, yeah, you got to save your buddy's life, I guess. But you'd rather sit in prison the rest of your life? Look, I can't speak for them. But the way the story turned out is the state won. We admit defeat. We just want to go home. That's a little unsettling to me because well, I didn't know how the story ended. I thought every like they I thought they had a new trial. Yeah. I had no idea this is yeah. how it ended. So essentially, in the end, the bad guys win. But but the the, the innocent men got to go home. So right. it is what it is. Yeah. On Meanwhile, August, there's still three kids dead. On August 19th, 2011, all three of them entered Alfred pleas and Judge Laser sentenced them to time served a total of 18 years and 78 days. And the West Memphis three walked out of prison that same day. It's a long time. Yeah. Also, I didn't know they were going to get out, Mike, till you ruined it a paragraph early for me. Thanks a lot. <laughs> well, we said the ex- he, we said Jason accepted the Alfred plea. Well, it could have been a twist. <laughs> Fucker. Based on the new evidence, Pam Hobbs was on the side of the West Memphis Three, saying that they should be freed. And shockingly, Mark Byers had flipped and was on their side. I mean, you know, the guy was out there talking about how he was going to piss on their graves and shooting pumpkins, and pretending they were their heads. So, yeah. Yeah. As the years passed, Mark had calmed down a lot. And he cites the trauma of having a child murdered, his brain tumor. And generally just being in a really dark place as to why he acted the way that he did. Damien wrote Mark a letter from while he was still in prison, apologizing to Mark for accusing him of the murders. 
essentially saying, I did to you what the state of Arkansas did to me. In return, Mark also apologized to Damien, Jason, and Jesse, and they all kind of forgave each other. It's a wild turn of events. Incidentally, Mark Byers was killed in a car accident last year. Yeah, it's a bummer. Yeah. As far as law enforcement is concerned, and as far as I know, everyone involved on the side of Arkansas say that they had the right people in jail for the murders. A competent member of law enforcement, FBI profiler John Douglas, said that the murders were more indicative of a single murderer intent on degrading and punishing the victims than a group of, quote, unsophisticated teenagers. Douglas believed that the perpetrator had a violent history and was familiar with the victims and with local geography. He said that the victims had died from a combination of blunt force trauma and drowning in a crime which he believed was driven by personal cause. The injustice in this case is really two-sided. On one side, you have the West Memphis Three spent close to 19 years in prison for a crime that I personally believe they did not commit. And on the other side, you have three boys who were murdered and will never get justice because in the mind of the state of Arkansas, the case is closed. I'm never going to know. Yeah. That's that's just part of my issue with the Alford plea is that it's just like, that's it. Yeah, they're free, but those three little boys were brutally murdered. And now that's the end of the story. I think also worth noting, Ian, is that Lori Davis, who the who acted as producer in some of those those later documentaries and married Damien in prison in 1999. So like 11 years before he even got out. I think she had a lot, yeah, to, lot to do with keeping that going and all the testing and keeping the case out in the public eye. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, and they're still happily married. Yeah, yeah. Like she met him in prison and moved, I believe, moved to Little Rock and spent a decade, you know, married to him. Wow. Just fighting to get him out. Yeah, it's amazing. I can't remember what her career was. I don't know if it was something in real estate or it was some like good career in New York. In New- I mean, yeah, yeah, she yeah. Just right. Quit and moved. Damien, Jason, and Jesse continue to pursue DNA evidence and, you know, anything new in the case to completely clear their names, just more for themselves and because there's still a strong group of people out there that believe that they are guilty. I said last week we were going to go into stuff about the points that are made about them being guilty, but I honestly don't see the point into going into that stuff. And I'm sure there's going to be a group of our listeners that don't like that. I will say that the website westmemphis3facts.com lays out their beliefs on why Damien, Jason, and Jesse are guilty, but there isn't a lot of backed up information on this website. They link a lot of the stuff to a website, callahan.mysite.com, where transcripts of Jesse's numerous confessions are poorly typed out with no documents to show that they're accurate, and other links to this Callahan site that they provide as proof to back up their claims don't work. They're just dead links. Does the internet work in Arkansas, though? <laughs> like, do they have Wi-Fi and things down there? I don't think you know, so, Dave. I think we've covered that <laughs> extensively throughout the series. I'm, I'm just not going to use stuff like that to, to do an outline Yeah. in a true crime case. Like, yeah, for aliens and silly shit you know sure but um i'm just not going to do it in this case like well you've also we've presented the stuff that was used in court against them so we presented the actual case that was brought against them we don't need to get into hearsay and rumors and all that other stuff like to give an example i used a lot of information for the john benet 
outline from this website, uh, johnbenetramsey.pbworks.com. That website had transcriptions along with the documents they came from, and like everything had a legit source. So, I mean, that's what I'm looking for when I'm doing an outline. So, I mean, this stuff, like it said, one of the things it said was that there was all these affidavits of Damien sacrificing dogs like witnesses, but there was no actual affidavits to back that up. And honestly, with affidavits and stuff, it's like, you can say whatever you want, really. You know? I mean, Stanton Friedman has a ton of signed affidavits from witnesses from Roswell. I guarantee not all of those are completely accurate. So, (laughs) you know what I mean? It's like... I mean, unless they're weather balloon experts, they're probably not accurate. Exactly. (laughs) The affidavits against Terry Hobbs from that deposition, they were in a deposition. You can read those. Mm -hmm. Um these websites just you know if they had working li- the thing is too if they had working links then maybe i would have you know dug into that more but you click on the links and they just you know 502 bad or you know bad request whatever another site that they link is wm3truth.com as being a source for their information but as far as i saw that website just completely does not work none of those links worked so mm. well, good websites folks but I, I would say to anybody that's really interested in this case to go out there and research it more if you because there's we didn't cover everything, obviously. Impossible. I mean there's multiple books, there's all the documentaries, there's so much more stuff to it. You know, this was just a kind of a comprehensive look at the case, but you know, there's a ton of information out there. Well, well done, Ian. That was good four parts. Very comprehensive. <laughs> I will say that even if they did it. There's not enough evidence to convict them of a crime in court. I agree. I mean, when your strongest evidence is black T-shirts and metal music and poems or lyrics that a guy wrote and and you have a guy who's, you know, probably intellectually disabled and you're, you know, manipulating him to give the answers you want to give, not recorded for 10 hours. Mm -hmm. Yeah, probably not a lot. I also don't think they did it, but I'm just saying even if they did, there's not enough evidence to convict in a court. I think that's one of the biggest problems with this case, whether you're on the side of them being innocent or you think they're guilty or you think Terry Hobbs did it or Mark Byers or there's no smoking gun in this case that points to someone, you know, Terry Hobbs stuff. It just it's it's similar here. It's not it's not 100 percent DNA evidence. So I I think that is a big issue with it. There's no no smoking gun here. And I don't think there ever will be, to be completely honest. Well, there won't be now. At this point, the case is closed, right? So it's just going to be all amateur work being done. Yeah, I think people in this country have a problem with accepting the fact that some crimes are just not going to be solved, you know? And they would rather see someone convicted for it. And I think it gives them blind spots when looking objectively at evidence because they need to have someone to blame for things. I agree with that. I think that's fair. I also think these guys only got out because of the the movie and the media coverage and stuff. I think there's tons of people sitting in jail for thing, similar cases just like this. I think yeah. It happens to poor minority people all the time. And people sitting in jail for things a lot less yeah, know, serious than this. Like the Innocence Project estimates that 2% of people on death row are actually innocent. So that would be 52 people in this country that are sitting on death row that are actually innocent. And that's a conservative estimate okay. from them. They I, think they think it's higher than that, but 
Can you they, imagine? They put it at two percent. I have no doubt because they free people all the time based on the Innocence Project's work. Sitting on death row, knowing you were innocent, mm-hmm. and just knowing that you're going to be put to death for something you did not do. That's uh, yeah. It's a mind fuck. I mean, you, you know, you, you discuss, we discussed all of the, the millions, allegedly, that Peter Jackson had to give for all the forensic experts and all that. The average person doesn't have access to resources right. like that. So you're not, they're not able to mount a credible defense when, when the system's stacked against you with stuff like that. Did they Dam- get crushed under the weight of the system. Did Damien ever have a, an execution date set? Hmm. I don't believe so, but, you know, it wasn't going to continue on forever they had been sure. in there going on 19 years so it was right. probably coming up sooner than later yeah right well and again i probably the media coverage probably stalled it even you know when all the celebrities being involved bringing the attention to it so what's this guy been doing the last 10 years well, he's read a he's written a bunch of books who do you mean by he, this guy uh, you mean by these guys sorry. oh okay all three of them yeah damien wrote a bunch of books I know he was in one of Peter Jackson's movies. I think he was in The Hobbit, actually. He got a hmm. brief role in that. Jesse completely stays out of the public eye. He just quietly lives his life. Yeah. That sounds about right. That's a, probably what I would want to yeah. do. He also has that huge tattoo of a clock on the top of his head, which oh, is pretty right, wild. <laughs> it has no time, no hands of time on it because like, he said something about being on death row for something or being in prison for life on something you didn't do. It's like time stands still or whatever. Mm. Doesn't sound like a 70 IQ. Sounds pretty deep. Uh, philosophically, this guy, it's a hell of a tattoo. And what's and Jason, think, and anything with Jason I, or I've seen him do, I've seen some interviews with Jason and stuff and he's appeared, you know, with Damien on TV shows and interviews and stuff. Damien's definitely the most, I guess you would say charismatic of the three. Yeah. Well, I think we saw that from the beginning, right? Yeah, but he's not doesn't have that all that smart ass stuff. He's definitely very humble. Yeah, well, I mean, he was a dumb kid. I don't think you can fault yeah. him for that. Yeah. And I mean, that's that's the big reason why I'm against the death penalty. You know, we talk about these cases. I know we will say like, I don't know, Dennis Rader for an example. I I said like the society would be better off without somebody like that. So I didn't really, you know. Mm. But, I thought you were for the death penalty. I thought I was the lone person against it. No, I I said like in certain cases I'm I'm all for it cuz Oh, okay. Like, yeah. So you were not you're not opposed to the death penalty in general. No, but okay. the fact that a conservative estimate is 52 people are sitting there for something they didn't do and that more than likely will be killed for it at some point. Yeah. One's too much, right? So That's right. There needs to be something looked at in fixing that system. Better for a hundred guilty to go free than for one innocent man to be executed, Mike. I think we had this discussion before. I think, I think Ian and I said, you know, hypothetically, I think we're in favor of the death penalty, but because practically it's not able to be applied in an even. I think we've of, had this conversation multiple times, and I get ridiculed every time for being against the death penalty. <laughs> well, now all of a sudden you guys are changing your tune when it comes to a situation it's, where uh, it's a little different. I think it's a funny running joke, but I think in actuality. No one's really pro-death penalty in the way it's applied currently in this country. Well, I don't think, yeah. I mean, in general, I don't think people anybody's pro-death. I think there's period. a lot of people the world can do without, but, you know. Okay. Ian, what are your final thoughts? You got any final thoughts on this one? No. I mean, it was it was interesting to go through all this. and For sure. I always like these. I like these things that I haven't looked at for years. And then 
my opinion changes going back on it. Like when I first went through these documentaries, I was so on the whole like Mark Byers is a fucking crazy person and all this stuff. I think when you see those documentaries for the first time, it's easy to get wrapped up in all that based on the way he's acting. But sure, you know, looking back on it and then reading everything and watching those again, you know, my opinion changed a lot about that guy. Interesting. Dave, you got any final thoughts? Uh, I don't believe that these guys did this. And I would just say, I don't think this is as uncommon as people think it is. I think things like this happen all the time. So, if you're ever looking for a worthwhile cause to donate to, I would consider your local legal aid society because a lot of poor people get crushed under stuff like this. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. We can move on now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I agree, uh, agree with you guys. I think um, definitely don't think they are guilty. And again, I, I go back to the fact that, you know, this whole story kind of blows up and is centered around three innocent teenagers who were wrongly accused of this crime. And meanwhile, kind of lost in the shuffle is three kids that were brutally murdered that will never see justice and their families will never see justice because of the way this played out. That's right. And those are the, the actual true victims of all of this. Um, you know, Damien, Jason and Jesse were obviously poorly treated and lost a good chunk of their lives to the, this system. But you know, they're still now walking around free and there's three kids who never got to experience life. That's right. It's sad. It's very sad. And that's why I did set this up the way that I did with part one, just being, I, you know, not even bringing up Damien, Jason or Jesse until what the last sentence of the outline where I said that's where we'll pick up on part two, because everything you listen regarding this case is all about the West Memphis three and the fact that these murders happened is like the side note, you right. know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I, th I thought in my mind it would be a little different for, to just do the first episode just on what happened to those three boys and everybody's, you know, whereabouts on that first night. So yeah, no, at, I at least give them a little more, I don't know, information about that stuff. than yeah. no, I think it works. They're usually given. Yeah, sure. Okay. Well, I think that completes our four-week series on the West Memphis Three to kick off 2021. Next week, we're going to go to another wrongfully accused individual, I believe. Accused, but not convicted. Hashtag yeah, next week, you guys are going to take down the whole podcast in one episode. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> and if they come back for more, we'll, we'll finish them off in part two. If it's going to, you know, if it goes two parts, we might get closed down before then. I think maybe you'll come to see that maybe this was a bit that Mike and I have been doing and we're Casey haters through and through. You never know. <laughs> so what about that? You never know. I might have Casey hater tattooed on my back. <laughs> Tramp stamp. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> All right. We got some uh, patron shout outs for the week. First, I have a, uh, a make good on a name I messed up last week. So shout out to Shikusky. I don't remember what I read it as last week, but apparently I butchered it. Probably was hammered. Um, not probably. Guarantee I was. <laughs> so uh, thank you very much, Shikusky. New patrons, we got Brooke, Summer Kohler, Blumpkin Patch, Madison Ritberger, Eddie the Yeti, Ryan Simpson, Gemma McMahon, Michelle Boycheco, Nicole Fleming, Cody, Cami Schubert, Kyle Patrick Rains, Taryn Desette, Aaron Lee, Ash Freeman, Taylor Daniel, Courtney Johnson, Caleb George, Victoria Crabtree, 
Gab V, Renee Kale, Harley Quinn, Andrew Winch, Janelle Armstrong, Ann Robinson, John Boley, Carrie Kajara, Jason Green, James Sabanis, Sadie Frederick, Thomas Fogarty, Kel McDonald, Jessica Gomez, Stephen Bishop, Free Winds 87, Victor Flores, Joseph Morgan, Little Robin, Ben White, Christina, Brandy Vickers, Tim Icing, Jamie Lichenbarger, Christy Scoville, Chunyi Fan, and M. Thank you all very much. We are at patreon.com slash necronomapod. Uh, also, if you go to Patreon and search us, we will not come up because we are listed as adult content. So you actually have to type in patreon.com slash necronomapod. Thank you all very much. If we didn't have all your college stories, it wouldn't be listed as adult content, Mike. So that's probably on you. It's probably what it is. <laughs> you and your Coxman stories. So well, we don't have to talk about them anymore. You should read about it in my new book. <laughs> Thousand ways to slay that hoe. <laughs> Coming soon to Barnes and Noble. <laughs> Boners and Noble. <laughs> yep. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> we were doing good. All right, Ian, what do you got? For iTunes, I have one for Mama Bing eleven and Becca 07. Thank you guys for the awesome reviews. All right, Dave. What do you got for us? I've got an entry in the bad review corner. This Uh-oh. Week. It's been weeks. Yeah. <laughs> Thought we were doing good. Uh-huh. This one is a two-star review, and it's titled Obnoxious. Submitted by someone named Hagfish Slime. It's a pretty sexy name, if you ask me. <clears throat> to give a sense of this podcast, the hook of one episode is a joke about a 12-year-old being sexually assaulted by his mother. These people are insufferable. <laughs> I love how that, that's the hook of the episode. Yeah. That's what we tried to reel you in with was a joke about a 12-year-old being sexually assaulted. <laughs> Not. In one episode. Well, that was what? Fred West? Or we just ripping on Fred West. We determined that because of what a piece of shit he is, we don't really classify him as a sexual assault victim. So we're going to roast him. Well, if you want right? to defend, if, yeah. if you, the whole basis of this review is that you want to defend Fred West, that's you're, what, you're that, insufferable. That's it. Hagfish continues. In one episode, they mock a review that called them, quote, chauvinists due to its misspelling, which, lucky for them, it was spelled wrong, so there was no real need to address why they have such a hard time going an episode without joking about college girls or joking about women talking too much. (laughs) (laughs) This is not a great review, Hagfish. Come on, you can do better than this. I continue. Or Hagfish continues. Gets two stars rather than one because Ian is all right. Oh, fuck Ian. Get out of here. <laughs> she must not be a Metallica fan or they must not be a Metallica fan. It could be a he. Probably a she. <laughs> and there's some good info between the obnoxious chatter and Mike's obsession with calling Betty Hill a crack whore. But I could pretty easily get the same experience by reading a Wikipedia article on the paranormal while listening to some incels conversing about their love lives in a locker room what's it that princess bride meme where i don't think that means what you think it means yeah, it most certainly this is a very poorly educated individual trying to comment on this show hagfish slime did you graduate sixth grade come on you could do better than that that's uh that's the bad review this week or as ian would say quote get fucked asshole <laughs> ah, 
That is exactly what he said before we went live talking about that review. <laughs> That's what he told his grandpa and he got the belt, right? <laughs> That's right. Maybe that'll be like my new catchphrase. <laughs> Get fucked. Oh, I, have a, I have a birthday shout out on January 31st for Megan Moody. Happy birthday, Megan. Your husband, Thomas, wanted us to shout you out for your birthday. So unbeknownst to Thomas, we're going to send Mike over there for your birthday to film Cucks Across America. So Thomas episode. is going to have to sit in the other room. Well, happy birthday. Happy birthday, Megan. I hope your husband's not too moody. <laughs> Bam. <laughs> Asking you oh, shall receive. That's right. That's all I got. You've just been Necronama cucked. <laughs> Bam. You get a t-shirt, though. You get a shirt. Like, you know, I've been Necronama cucked. I watched Mike bang my wife and all I got was this lousy t-shirt. I got cucked. <laughs> oh, boy. Okay. Well, this was a fun uh, four parts. John Bonet, Scientology, West Memphis 3. Epic. It's going on the Mount Rushmore of long, long episodes. I guess so. We have to put it up there. Anyways. Um, all right. Well, next week we're going to piss probably some people off a little bit. It is what it is. So, I mean, Casey, you got like a, a week to get a hold of us to get in studio. So it's your chance to, to clear the air. You. Yeah. Speak your mind. But all right. You know, damn well, she listens to everything. <laughs> so you think she's going to listen to our show? I would say 100 percent. She's like a textbook example of a narcissist. Mm. Mm. I guarantee she listens <laughs> to everything that's done about her. You hear Mikey's like, mm, 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 mm. OK, <laughs> so she's going to hear what I have to say. <laughs> We are on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, at Necronomapod, Patreon.com slash Necronomapod. If you want to check out our merch, Amazon.com and search Necronomapod. Thank you very much. We appreciate, as always, you guys listening. Get those Bernie Sanders shirts while they last. Hey, they're up there. Check them out. <laughs> I'm going to get one of those myself. Those are cool. <laughs> All right. You guys ready for a cool down beer? Cheers.